0: Punch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Hope you're enjoying Counterpunch Plus. It's available to everybody for a limited time. That's the brand new subscriber section over at Counterpunch. We have lots of great content for you to check out there. My article is one of many contributions from a wide variety of authors. You can get book reviews, cultural analysis, political analysis, foreign policy stuff, everything under the sun just as you come to Expect from counterpunch uh, so please do go over to the website go check out counterpunch plus and consider becoming a subscriber it's available for free to everybody but that's just for a limited time pretty soon you're going to need to be a subscriber and it's one of the best decisions you could make supporting counterpunch supporting independent media on the left is so critical today in particular as we witness the growing political conflict, the seemingly uh, you know perfect storm of fascist uh, circumstances that are brewing around us, and it's going to be ever more important that we have media that we can turn to, that we can trust, that we know is going to give us the unvarnished truth, and that's certainly what Counterpunch brings. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you'll continue to enjoy it and to become a subscriber. Go to the website. Do that. Go to Counterpunch Radio's tab there. You can get a t-shirt. Go into the online store. Support the podcast that way. You can also support my work on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. You can also support the work of Paul Street, and I hope you do because Paul is my guest this week. Paul is a returning guest, a friend of the show, an iconoclast, the leader of a revolutionary vanguard, a uh, cadre. I don't know what, what, else, what, what else might I call him. A lot of different things, but I can call him a friend. I can call him an author, and I can call him the author of the brand new book from counterpunch hollow resistance obama trump and the politics of appeasement do check that out you can get that right on the website you can also check out his other book where he's contributed unflattering photos of fascists an excellent new book you can pick that up as well paul welcome back to the show
1: hey thanks eric
0: Thanks for coming back. Thanks for doing uh, all the work that you're doing. And this excellent book, I think it's very, very timely. I'm going to start us off really by asking you about this book and why you wrote it, because we're all consumed by Trump and Biden as this three ring circus gets ever more depressing. And uh, so I guess one has to ask the question, why Obama? Why now?
1: You know, I didn't want to write this uh, book at first. It was kind of a assigned topic to some degree. I, I like assignments. Uh, uh, and I thought this one over, and at first I was kind of a, a thumbs down. Uh, I already had two books with Obama's name in the title, and you know, I didn't want to come off as a uh, Obama obsessive. Uh, and, and perhaps more importantly, uh, I've been thoroughly immersed in the Trump years, and both as a writer, as an activist. It's just sort of around the clock, Uh, with Trump. So, you know, it's kind of like, what, we're going to write about Obama in the age of Trump. But I looked into the topic more deeply, uh, and it it became actually a very interesting story that, among other things, was a window, was an angle on the Trump era, because what this book is about is Obama as an ex-president. And I'm arguably fairly qualified to undertake that topic, because I did Obama as a state senator and a U.S. Senator and a presidential candidate in Barack Obama and the future of American politics. Then I did Obama as a president and the empire's new clothes. So, you know, maybe maybe this is a good assignment for me. And it turns out it didn't have to distract me from Trump, Trumpism, neo-fascism at all. In fact, the whole first chapter ends up being about Trump and Trumpism. And then it sort of also becomes, in the form of Obama, yet again, a a kind of moral fable on the kind of person that we don't want to (laughs) be. How exactly not to respond to the rise of the fascism that, in Obama's case, we can get into this, you've helped create uh, uh, in the first place. There's an opportunity to continue the story. Uh, of the vacuous to repressive neoliberal corporatist and imperialist Barack Obama, why not? I might as well carry it all the way into the ex-presidency. And then something as I was doing that that I had never thought of became rather interesting, which is the uh, story of ex-presidents. But in this particular case, a very unusual ex-presidency, right? What are the norms of ex-presidents? Well, typically and historically, it's to be pretty quiet Uh, and to retire and I don't know, uh, you know, speak at banquets and fundraisers and uh, and uh, and not really say a whole hell of a lot about your successors in office. But what happens? What are the norms when your successor in the White House recognizes no known ruling class or presidential norms? Uh, when it comes to his own behavior in the White House and in which his constant uh, 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 maniacal violation of every uh, cultural and constitutional and civilizational norm includes trashing you, the ex-president, like every day, by name, constantly. And, 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 you know, being obsessed with his predecessor. There's also sort of a norm that the current president doesn't trash His immediate successors, at least not all that much. And of course, Trump's just obsessed. He's been obsessed with Obama and trashing Obama. This goes back to earlier. This goes back to when Obama became president, but it has continued certainly as ex-president. And he has gone out of his way to explicitly target programs, anything associated, anything affiliated with with Obama, anything that has Obama's imprimatur, uh, and particularly his uh, uh, so-called signature Program. So, you know, the game changes. And, you know, even all of that side and that sort of personal assault angle aside, what the hell are the norms uh, when the next president that succeeds you is a fascist, uh, which incidentally Obama uh, uh, knows because he said it to Tim Kaine. He said it to Tim Kaine in October of 2016. We know this from a documentary that came out earlier this year about Hillary. I, I, what was it called? Hillary? I, I can't remember the name documentary. But he's, they actually have him on phone, on tape, or by Tim Kane's recollection. It makes it into the, uh, into the, um, into the documentary that Tim Kane recalls that Obama called him and said, Tim, you better watch out here. We got to keep a fascist out of the White House. Um, you know, Obama did have a little bit of education in history and political science. He's not an idiot. He's not stupid. He's sort of narcissistic and evil and neoliberal and corporate. He's not stupid knows a thing or two, and he called it. Uh, he never has never said that in public, even even now, even after Kenosha, even after Portland, even after Lafayette Square, uh, even after the debate last Tuesday. I don't think you'll ever hear the F word uh, come out of Obama's mouth with regard to Trump. At any event, all this became uh, um, very, very interesting, and, and I suppose also just kind of a an opportunity to uh, beat up on myself, you know. I was, uh, writing about Obama has, has got a kind of masochistic uh, uh, aspect to it. as Well, uh, of course, so does covering Trump.
0: It's so interesting thinking about this sort of psychology behind Obama and what Obama represents. You had an interesting anecdote in the book that I wanted to highlight here because I think it's so instructive. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the poster that Obama had in the office with him, what it represents, who's on the poster, what it represents, what it ostensibly represents, and why it's so painfully ironic.
1: Yeah, well, uh, throughout much of his presidency, uh, Obama had a couple things uh, behind him in the Oval Office, one of which was a um, little statue of Dr. Martin Luther King, who he consistently betrayed for eight straight years, but we don't have to go into that right now. And the other one was, a, uh, 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 I suppose, a rather uh, discordant uh, uh, thing, which is a big poster of the iconic knockout of Sonny Liston by young Cassius Clay. i Trying to remember what year that was, the early 60s. Uh, and the reason I find that ironic is this, this image of this proud uh, kind of militant uh, becoming or soon to be Black nationalist boxer, Muhammad Ali, the future Malcolm X. You know, uh, David Remnick uh, wrote a really interesting book that came out uh, many years ago about the three archetypes of black boxers in the United States in the early mid 60s. And one of them was Sonny Liston, who was emblematic of the, um, oh, urban black uh, gangster thug image in white America. The other, the other one was, was, was Clay, later Ali, who was sort of associated in uh, political culture with Malcolm X and black nationalism, and it was Floyd Patterson, who was considered sort of the integrationist, nice Dr. Martin Luther King type of boxer. So here you've got um, the black nationalist uh, uh, soon to be felling the urban thug, which is interesting because I know Obama from Chicago. and He was always very uncomfortable with and standoffish. I have a funny story about that. Urban black issues and, and urban crime and, and ghetto life and all of that, Obama was always a very strange and, and, and unusual relationship with all of that. Uh, uh, but the guy that's, but, but he's, his career is the opposite of Clay. Uh, I, and I mentioned this in the intro, which I called No Counterpunch, which I thought was really clever, because um, this is counterpunch books, you know, right? So I get to say that. And, and it, Obama has no counterpunch. And that's sort of one of the subtexts, one of the themes of this book, particularly its second chapter, is he just sort of takes it uh from Trump. He just he just never really ever fights back. He's nothing like uh um uh Cassius Clay at all, though curiously enough and ironically enough we really never have located the punch that knocked out uh Sonny Liston, you know, in in that fight. So I don't know. I guess I was just playing around with Remnick's imagery, but but, but trying to just find a clever uh, 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 um, pugilistic cultural way to uh, to capture the essence uh, of Obama and the irony, the distance between his image of his himself and his reality.
0: Well, that really gets into one of the primary functions of liberal uh propaganda about Obama, which is sort of a a process of myth-making, the mythologizing of what Obama is, what Obama represents, what the Obama era was, and uh, what kind of a human being, let alone political leader, this person is. And uh, so it is interesting the way in which the myth of Obama has been erected such that all of the failures, all of the horrendous decisions, including all of the things that have been so uh, feeble as to be ruled back by Trump, all of that has kind of come together into an indecipherable amalgam of Obama myth.
1: Yeah, well, one of the great ironies uh, of Obama, the ex-president, is that he's incredibly popular. Uh, I don't know if he's the, the most popular in the in the polling data, we'll have to ask Tony Dimaggio about the polling data, but he's one of the most popular political figures in American life today. And and part of that is the irony of his image being burnished by the awfulness of the Trumpenstein, uh, the neo-fascist Frankenstein president that he himself helped birth. Right? Uh, it's it's one of the more disturbing undertoes and and and. Um, parts of this parts of this whole story I can't tell you how many times I've gone to um, anti-trump demonstrations anti-fascist demonstrations and there's a couple of people who show up and they have those t-shirts that, that with Obama's big smiling narcissistic face looking out at you and then it says under the face the t-shirt says miss me yet do you miss me yet and I always go up to these people and say you don't get it I don't miss him at all he's intimately his whole presidency is intimately related to the current presidency they're, they're bound up with each other in a sick codependent uh, relationship of, uh, of uh, it's, it's profoundly dysfunctional in nature but a lot of people don't uh, don't see it that way and at one level it's not surprising at all I mean Trump really is a nightmare he he absolutely is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's you've got to do some work. You've got to do some intellectual work to, to try to explain to people who weren't following at the time uh, how Obama helped create all of this nightmare.
0: Well, we're going to get to that in in a quick second here because I think that's one of the primary subjects of the book and one of the primary topics I want to discuss. But before we do that, one other myth about Obama that I've noticed that I know that you noticed it, you we you and I talked about it, but you wrote about it as well. This myth of Obama as a as as representing opposition to Trump, that this this sort of complete lie that Obama has somehow spoken out against Trump. And you even noted how, uh, even in articles that ostensibly document the ways in which Obama speaking out against Trump, if you read a little bit into the articles, you notice that he says almost nothing, if not nothing at all. So, uh, even with respect to resistance to Trump, Obama is hollow and mostly a fake.
1: You know, one of the, um, things I did not expect to find and was really surprised about in the research was the disconnect between the way Obama was being covered in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and Huffington Post and all the rest. It was almost as if reporters were engaged in wishful thinking, right? Liberal reporters wanting to Obama to be speaking out more than he was. And I'd run across article titles with, you know, Obama finally completely opens up, Obama fights back, you know, Obama gets in Trump's grill and, well, okay, I made that up. But, you know, t- to titles like that, suggesting that there was this really sort of assertive counterpunch, that there was this real smackback. And then I'd go find the actual speeches or the tweets or the press releases that had come out of Obama world. And they had just absolutely nothing to do or very little to do with the title, you know, of the Washington Post or the New York Times essay, extremely silent through much of this presidency, almost religiously refuses to ever say Trump's name. I mean, to to a level that's just practically uh, absurd, and the irony being that that Trump's calling him out by name, you know, usually on completely maniacal grounds, but using his name constantly, never says Trump, of course, he never says fascism, because that would be, mark you as crazy and so forth, even though that's his private and accurate understanding uh, of Trump, uh, um, you know, and of course never takes any responsibility. Of course, why would why would he do that? For the Trump phenomena, you do get these kind of um, very carefully worded press release, very official statements almost as if Trump was still president. The language is almost exactly, excuse me, as if Obama was still president. The the language is if, you know, it's written by one of his his staffers, ex-presidents still have staffs, right? And it's very official sounding when particular signature programs are attacked. So when the Iran nuclear deal was attacked, you know, there was a good three paragraph statement, didn't mention Trump by name. It's almost as if it was issued by the Obama White House. Same for the Paris Climate Accord when Trump went after that. But uh, you know, uh, just not much there. The only time he sort of heats up a little bit and almost starts to say Trump's name or referred or refer indirectly to the the president of the United States right now is in accord with the election cycle. So when you get close to the um, when you get close to the 2018 midterms. He goes to Detroit and he goes to Milwaukee. Incidentally, when Obama's speaking to largely black audiences, like he did in both Cleveland and Milwaukee, uh, Detroit, excuse me, in Milwaukee, right ahead of the 2018 midterms, uh, he, he, ups the, he, he ups the rhetoric a little bit because he kind of has to uh, in, in, in that kind of environment. And then, and then he kind of goes after Trump kind of, you know, a little bit. But it's, it's really, a, it's really a, a, a scarce. Uh, It's really quite extraordinary. Um, So he decided, I guess, to um, continue to respect the norms, uh, even though the Nazi that he ushered into the White House and handed off, by the way, a lot of institutional powers to uh, and and evil mechanisms to, uh, even as that guy uh, uh, trashes him
0: day in and day out. Also going to get to the ways in which uh, Obama handed off an imperial and lawless presidency to this criminal degenerate named Trump. Um, but I just want to follow up on that point about Obama and um, let's let's call it his fake resistance. So if we're to understand and, and, and accept your premise and, and what your research shows, namely that Obama actually was... At least to some degree, cognizant of what Trump represented, that Trump is a fascist, etc. Then that raises the question: If he knew that all along, why is it that the singular po- uh, a, a exercise of political power and influence that he has actually employed was to attack Bernie Sanders and the left? <laughs>
1: Well, that's just getting to the fact that the Democratic Party is not primarily about uh, even winning elections, much less advancing uh, um, social justice and environmental sanity and democracy. It's not primarily about winning elections. It's primarily about uh, um, it's primarily about serving corporate sponsors. And quite frankly, uh, elite corporate sponsors and the Democratic Party establishment would prefer uh, uh, um, to lose uh, to the other party even as that party uh, crosses over into neo-fascist space thanks incidentally in part to the democratic party helping ratchet the whole party system further to the right but even as the republican party moves over into white nationalist arch authoritarian neo-fascist trump space um, Democratic Party would prefer to lose to that party than it would, than it would, than than to lose to the mildly social democrat progressive left wing of its own party, right? To the AOC wing, to the Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders wing, and uh, that's pretty gross. Uh, uh, You know, and the relationship between Trump and the ruling class is sort of complex. Uh, I, I think they preferred Hillary they would prefer Joe Biden, but Hillary lost, and they cut a marriage of convenience of sorts. Ruling class, capitalist elite. Uh, certainly, for the first couple of years of the Trump administration, made out kind okay of okay because of deregulation and uh, massive tax cuts, and they've been kind of okay with that. And I'm afraid, um, I'm afraid this. We still have that same sick and grotesque dynamic now. I mean, look, look who they've uh, look who they've put forward. One of the most insultingly. Uh, uh, challenged and, and right-wing and doddering candidates in, in the history of bad American presidential candidates. Joe Biden.
0: Before we go to a break, I want to ask something a little bit about um, the backlash against Obama, because that okay. is a really interesting phenomenon, one that is both about Obama, but also not even really about Obama and, and to some degree was within his control and to a large degree outside of his control. And I, and what I mean is the sort of Obama as ushering in or 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 touching off a kind of a fascist backlash in the United States. and I think that that in hindsight is is certainly true. I think it was evident back then but uh, for those of us who critique uh, Obama and liberals from the left, that was not necessarily the most pressing issue at the time. But in looking at it in hindsight, it does seem interesting because, the backlash against obama was absolutely driven by racism there's oh, yeah. no doubt about that and so at the same time it's also driven by obama's complete disregard for working people working class issues let alone black issues but just working class issues in general obama as the as the embodiment of neoliberal uh, economic po- policy as it's reflected in a sort of imperial presidency in some ways as far as America goes. And certainly for the sort of down and out, you know, fascistoid white working class of, of quasi myth, uh, yeah. Obama, represented, Obama represented an existential threat. And so in some senses, Ob- Trump couldn't possibly exist if it weren't for Obama,
1: yeah, you know um, that's really interesting. Uh, so, um, as I, I think you know, and as uh, our common friend Tony DiMaggio has run a lot of numbers on, the Trump base is not all that particularly proletarian. Uh, it's 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 actually more sort of petty bourgeois. It's it's less blue collar and working class than is sometimes thought. But that doesn't mean that uh, 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 that Obama's neoliberalism, which was very pronounced. I mean, he he. What was William Greider's famous line? He gave America a blunt lesson on who has the power, right? And that's Citigroup, and Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Trust, and and all of that who got huge bailouts from Bush, but also then they went higher under under Obama, and while the working class got nothing, you know, or 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 very or very little. Uh, Obama. Um, by being that kind of president and, and rendering his claims to progressivism transparently inauthentic, uh, uh, um, demobilized uh, the, the, um, the Democratic Party's traditional progressive majority sort of neo you know, new deal base in a way that just opened the door for uh, for Trump to succeed, and and more than is commonly acknowledged, Obama demobilized black voters. And this turned out to be rather relevant in cities, in battleground states, uh, by which I mean Milwaukee in Wisconsin, I'm referring to the 2016 election. The New York Times ran a really interesting series uh, once they interviewed a number of black people on the north side of Milwaukee who were like, well, we had a black president for eight years, right? I mean, it's remarkable at one level symbolic and cultural victory and it translated into almost nothing, specifically, really nothing, for, for black people in, in this neighborhoods. And that happened in Milwaukee, it happened in Detroit and Flint, which are cities in another battleground state. It happened in Charlotte, in another battleground state, North Carolina. It happened in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, in another battleground state Pennsylvania. And I could I, I, I could go on. And the demobilization of the black vote is is really kind of kind of interesting. And and one of the ironies, and one of the sick and perverse kinds of ironies, and this was a concern I always had about Obama. Obama was never, and I knew Obama from Chicago in Illinois, particularly strong on poverty issues, is always a neoliberal, uh, and never particularly strong on, on black issues. And his presidency did essentially nothing, it had no targeted programs whatsoever to attack uh, savage racial inequality in this country. He did nothing almost to protect black people at the same time that he by simply by virtue of the color of his skin was triggering a significant racist backlash. And there's a direct line of continuity from the eliminationism and racism that David Niewert talked about in a book that he did, even in the late George W. Bush era, up through the racist Tea Party, up through the white nationalist Trump era. But it goes ballistic with the presence of a black individual, technically black individual with a Muslim sounding name in the White House. That just sends that stuff into hyperdrive. And the Trump involved and, and the white nationalists just go absolutely apeshit. So, you know. It- and, and, and to adding to the whole complexity of all that, Obama's very conscious of it. His advisors are very conscious of it. David Axelrod is very conscious of the fact that he's already got white America virulently triggered simply by virtue of the, of, of the color of his skin, uh, which makes it even less likely that they're going to do anything at all about America's great historic issue, race, right, and, and particularly white, black relations. Now, um, I often hear, well, that's not Obama's fault at all. You know, I always kind of wondered about that because I was sort of on the ground in Iowa at the time watching the Obama phenomena happen. And I, and I knew Obama from Chicago, Illinois. And I always had kind of a different take on that because I came out of many years of anti-racism, very serious anti-racist policy research. I was a research director in a very, and, and did a lot of substantive empirical work about, about policy. And segregation, and separate, and unequal, and all of that, and and for me, anti-racism w- was always about how we're going to try and correct it. It's about programs, uh, uh, and and policies, and and real things to break up ghettos and to to change how institutions function and to and and to make it so the labor market and financial markets and housing markets and and the ma- and the criminal justice system and fill in the blank that they stop functioning in a way. It steals life chances and wealth and income and health from black people and, and steals it from them and gives them to the white people. Compared to that, the question of the color of faces in high places, that's a, that's a silly symbolic cultural bourgeois type of identity politics issue. What color the, a CEO of a corporation is, what gender or sexual orientation a politician is. I get why that stuff matters to people I was always very worried about that and wondered really from the beginning if actually Obama wasn't doing the cause of racial justice, the struggle for black equality, uh, a disfavor by becoming president, by, as I thought he had the capability to be very early on. And I wondered if that would really actually help black people and the cause of racial justice because A, he wouldn't want to do anything, actually do it, even, even if he wanted to, even if he wasn't a neoliberal, even if he really was a Kingian civil rights idealist and wanted to overcome racial inequality, he certainly wasn't going to do anything um, because he didn't, because race was even more fraught with danger for him because of his race, and because he was going to spark a backlash against Black people, and and that backlash would be experienced by people with who. Who are relatively unprotected while he is retiring in a multi million dollar mansion on Martha's Vineyard and becoming a multi millionaire with a 65 million dollar book contract and a Netflix contract and trying to become an NBA, uh, uh, art, art owner. So, you know, I always wondered about that whether and maybe he does have some responsibility for that because anti racism is about, uh, isn't about just getting a, uh, a, 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 half-black guy in the White House. It's about something more
0: than that. After the break, I want to ask you all about what Obama's been up to, but let's just finish this point that you were raising. And actually, if I remember correctly, Paul, this came up the last time you were on this show, but it bears repeating since we're talking about Obama, that one of the interesting effects that Obama has had is that he has almost by default... Transformed black voters in America into more or less reactionary voters. I mean, black voters in the United States have typically been at the far left of the political spectrum, at least, you know, when it comes to uh, cultural groups and demographics in the United States. Historically, black politics has been of the most progressive kind and uh, gravitated towards progressive policies, as you were just talking about, and progressive leaders. And in the post-Obama period, it seems that much of black politics has been reduced to the burnishing of Obama's image and the burn- the sort of guardianship over his legacy such that black people come out in droves voting for a right-wing Democrat like Joe Biden solely because he represents the Obama legacy.
1: Yeah. uh, And yeah, here's another reason to say, uh, ironically, thanks, Obama. No, that's right. I remember years ago, Michael Dawson, who was a University of Chicago political scientist, wrote an interesting book in which he statistically showed uh, exactly what you just said, that black folks were well to the social democratic, democratic socialist and anti-imperialist left of the rest of the American population and, uh, you know, this is something Glenn Ford has talked about in Black Agenda Report, too. You can we sort of witnessed Obama uh, move cultural and political attitudes uh, amongst a certain part of the Black population further to the right. And um, my goodness, that really was the story in many ways of the 2020 primaries, where uh, once Clyburn and the Black Congress and others in the Black Congressional Caucus were able to swing South Carolina, for right wing, actually, kind of racist in, in ugly kinds of ways. Joe Biden, uh, that was the end of the story. That was the end of the game, and it was uh, with a few tweaks from Obama and others along the way. It was uh, it was a uh, it was the end of Bernie, who you know who 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 had made had some issues with reaching out to Black America and, and could have done a better job. Uh, this election cycle, as in the last
0: one. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about what Obama's been up to uh, since leaving the Oval Office, and I would like to talk a little bit about the election and about Obama's perspectives on electoralism, electoral politics, and uh, the responsibility of every American to blah, blah, blah. All right, we're going to head to a break. Enjoy the music. We will be right back. we're back here on counterpunch radio chatting with paul street the book the brand new book from counterpunch hollow resistance obama trump and the politics of appeasement so paul on the uh before we headed to break we were talking a little bit about obama's really deleterious effect on black america and black voting habits and sort of black politics and one of the interesting things about obama is the forms that resistance quote-unquote takes with Obama, because Obama really, in one sense, is the evangelical preacher uh, preaching the gospel of electoralism, isn't he? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, everything's vote, everything's vote. He went to Urbana-Champaign in September of 2018 and told students there that um, the best way to protest is to vote, the best way is to protest and vote, and I always say, well, the best way to protest is to protest, and now we're in an election cycle where we're not even going to have any, uh, a vote that's, that's remotely decent without people getting in the streets and uh, pro- protesting before, or during. And after it, uh, this was the theme in his oration that he gave at the um, John Lewis funeral uh, um, earlier, you know, this summer. He had some tweets w- where he kind of had to admit in the face of the George Floyd Rebellion, which incidentally is the greatest protest wave in American history. I have read that 27 million people took to the streets in late May and June and July of this summer. Obama had to kind of, um, you know, say a couple nice things about that, but he couldn't do it, I noticed, without getting his dig in, that the real shit, you know, when you really get down to it, the most important thing you can ever do, it's the most important action you can ever engage in, is, uh, is of course voting. And in one amusing passage I found, Obama also had to combine that with getting in some one of his many ridiculous little digs at the disp- supposedly dysfunctional 1960s, you know, when people protested just too much and got too radical. So yeah, that's his whole thing. You got to vote, vote, vote. So, I mean, that's a problem right there, right? Howard Zinn wrote about this. You know, it's not just about who's sitting in the White House, it's about sitting in the streets. And I'm a historian. By trade and you know you just find this again and again actually voting is two minutes once every 1460 days but but real progress happens when people take to the streets when they have flint sit-down strikes when they have when they sit in on lunch counters and do freedom rides and and occupy places and you know all this kind of stuff that's history really changes and um you know so so that's a problem with it but then furthermore you go further with it. okay barack vote well vote for who? And it's always these milquetoast, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, warmed-over neoliberal types of nobodies that people don't like. And they have good reasons to not like them. I mean, for God's sake, seven in ten Americans right now support Medicare for all. Obama, Biden, who we owe to Obama. I mean, Joe, you know, thanks, Obama. Joe Biden is, is on the stage of history as the supposed counter to the most dangerous criminal in human history, Donald Trump because of barack obama i mean biden would have faded away many years ago except for being named vice president and now getting the nod as president so okay vote for who people like that you know i i noticed tracking obama's endorsements he likes to release these endorsements he did it in 20 ex-president obama he's supposedly not political but he releases endorsement lists for for state level races and congressional races and in 2018 and it's happening again in 2020 you don't see the uh, you don't see the progressives the people that are actually running in accord with public opinion for things like the Green New Deal, for things like Medicare for all, for things like uh, seriously progressive taxation and, and you know, and, and, and stuff like that. No, he doesn't. He doesn't support them. He supports these kind of third way, uh, creepy. Uh, it, it, it's not true that the neoliberal Democrats, I, I hear this on the left all the time, they're Republicans. Now, it's not true because Republicans have become fascist. The whole party system has moved to the right. But, he, but his his Democrats are, are are what the Republicans used to be, right? And uh, so, you know, vote, yeah, for who? Thanks, Barry.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Obama. Um, exactly. <laughs> so the question then, really, I think, um, hmm, I'm debating whether or not I want to ask. You know, There's central- something
1: else to say about that. Do you want to let me to get it in?
0: Uh, no, you're going to go ahead and submit that in writing after the recording <laughs> is done. Go ahead, Paul.
1: It's uh, we had this very interesting moment uh, just just earlier this summer, you know, with the suspended NBA season, where Obama actually talked LeBron James into going to his comrades in the NBA and calling off the strike they were going to do that they were thinking about doing. There was some sentiment for in the NBA Players Association because they were like, you know, it's after Jacob Blake, after these, the, after the maiming, the paralyzing, the crippling of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Obama convinced them to no, you know, you have a better platform uh, by playing basketball. And uh, I thought it would have been a great statement. Hey, white America, we're not going to entertain you with our bodies while you continue to kill, maim, and disfigure black bodies in the streets of America. But Obama said no. And here's the little, uh, here's the little punchline of that whole story. Obama, as has been reported, wants to be a part owner in an NBA franchise one day, which he will, in fact, have enough money to do because he is raking it in as an ex-president
0: cashing in on imperialism it's uh as american as apple pie okay question for you paul does obama does obama's myth exist in the way that it does if trump doesn't exist and and i would be to be specific about this i'm not talking in general I mean, with respect to foreign policy as well, because one of the things, and I said this already like three years ago or two years ago, that when Trump was running for re-election, I predicted, guaranteed, and in fact have been correct, that he would run to the left of his opponent on foreign policy to the left of his opponent on criminal justice reform to the left of his opponent on several issues while simultaneously also being a far right fascist and that's exactly what's happened because now one of these talking points and you hear it all over the place including from the this absolutely ghastly and ghoulish collection of Trump and leftists uh, that Trump is some kind of a peacenik, right <laughs> that compared to that compared to Obama Trump hasn't started any new wars he's you know he releases these doves uh, on a, on a semi-annual basis so that they can fly around the the earth and make peace for all men Trump is a fascist but Trump is is also not prosecuting imperialism so say many of these types but oh, there's yeah. some truth to this isn't there paul because in fact obama did prosecute seven wars simultaneously he did use oh God, the powers of the presidency in an extremely lawless and aggressive and viciously belligerent way and in fact Trump is able to use these talking points because if we sort of take off the rose colored glasses, Obama was a vicious fucking imperialist.
1: Oh, God, no. He he devastated not just Libya, but all of North Africa. He spread the American empire uh, into new reaches of Africa where the United States had never been. He uh, oversaw, along with Hillary, a uh, hideous right wing military business coup. In Honduras, he also uh, set new records for deporting people from the country and, and could go on and on and on like that. Yeah, I would be careful about Trump being understood as an anti-imperialist, though. I mean, he I think he's actually out-drone-bombed. Out-drone, this is a very quiet story that you don't hear much about. Uh, out, to be I, clear,
0: I was being yeah. very sarcastic. Yeah, my,
1: out-drone-bombed uh, Trump, Obama. Trump
0: is not an anti-imperialist. Yeah. Trump is a murderer of the highest order.
1: Yeah, and the economic sanctions on Venezuela and Iran have been crippling and devastating. Uh, the support for the Saudi, the Saudi assault on Yemen has been devastating. I, th- I don't think we get out of a second Trump term with a, without some sort of major military campaign of some kind. Uh, uh, whether he has enough credibility with the military to pull it off
0: is another We could have been in a war with Iran already in January.
1: Extremely <laughs> close to that. And the, the killing of Soleimani was, was grotesque on New
0: Mexico. An act of war
1: yeah it was an incredibly aggressive act of war but um so you know if Hillary had won no, i don't think we'd have uh, quite because uh, well who knows i you know that's 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 uh, speculation but I, I think a lot of the obama lust right now is driven by horror at the uh, at the evil of this uh multi dimensionally awful fascistic antichrist ogre named donald trump i mean we've never seen the like of anything quite like this, so yeah it makes um Makes Obama look good by comparison.
0: And the thing with Trump, too, is that is that he prosecutes imperialism in a more nakedly vicious way than Obama did. I mean – talk about just as one example. I mean, the Trump administration has uh, loosened the restrictions on rules of engagement. So American soldiers can legally just execute families and all kinds of shit that they can do now that at least before there was even some semblance of uh, prohibition against certain things. Obama, uh, rather Trump, has sort of taken taken the restraints off, as it were. Yeah, well, um,
1: he, uh, he pardoned that uh, abject war criminal, Eddie Gallagher, uh, there's something else people never talk about. Because, yeah, there's and there's so much horror with the Trump. It's overkill. It's a blitzkrieg. You can't even keep up with it. People talk. A lot of left journalists I know talk about this. They just almost give up. We can't keep track. So it's it's so so a lot of stories get lost. And one of them is the tearing up of nuclear weapons agreements. And um, and the now Obama actually started a major nuclear modernization program that Trump then picked up with and ran with like crazy. But he actually asked for. And commissioned and has deployed a new, very dangerous type of uh, tactical nuclear weapon. It's precisely the kind of thing you don't want in play out there. And, uh, and, you know, he says very ominous things and the things that he said, I mean, we came very close to with North Korea, from what I understand.
0: Um, So, you know, come on. I want to ask you the overri- the overriding question here, Paul, probably the one that animates all of the others, the entire discussion that we've had. It's really the underlying question in your book. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's the certainly the theme and, and focus and uh, motivation behind my piece for Counterpunch Plus, the plot against Libya and Obama-Biden-Clinton conspiracy, which is what it was. Um, and this question really, I think, kind of ties it all together. How did Obama pave the way for Trump?
1: Oh, he paved the way for Trump by um, um, disillusioning the population, by running on this great image of, of, of progressive hope and change overlaid with a, with a kind of uh, a quasi-fake revolutionary sense of broad societal transformation having occurred because my God, a black man was ascending to the White House in the land of cotton slavery. I mean you know whoever would have thought it oh I, I, I'm really weird I, I actually by oh five and six I was saying Obama's the next president, but but even I started wondering if that was actually going to happen and you know and and uh, and and then all of that. And this is part of why black folks on the north side of Milwaukee just didn't really even see the point of voting in 2016 in those New York Times interviews. And all of it came to just incredibly little for real people, you know, for working class uh, people. Healthcare premiums were still through the roof. Jobs still sucked. The nation was still, yes, there was an economic expansion that started under Obama, but it was a low wage economic expansion. College student debt was still absolutely miserable. Uh, 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 um, you know, I mean, you could, just, you could just go through the list. And the United States continued to, to neglect its own uh, 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 most impoverished and disadvantaged neighborhoods. There continued to be 15 neighborhoods in Chicago where half the kids were living at less than half the poverty level. The cops kept shooting people. We, you know, this didn't all... I mean, before... Before George Floyd, before uh, Breonna Taylor, before Jacob Blake, there was, there was Trayvon Martin, there was Mike Brown, there was Tamir Rice, there was Freddie Gray, there was Laquan McDonald. This all happened in the time of Obama. That didn't stop. None of that stopped. So all this kind of um, sense of, um, of transformative change became, became for naught, and people became demobilized and stood apart from it. And it's completely understandable in some ways, uh, that they did. And by the way, when people rose up against it in a very exciting and inspiring kind of way, when the whole country lit up with Occupy encampments, almost like a magical cell phone map from coast to coast in like the course of a couple of weeks in the late summer and early fall of 2011, well, there was Obama and all his allies, uh, generally Democrats in cities, deploying their police and, their, and working with the Department of Homeland Security to dis mantle the movement against the 1%, you know, and I see this when I'm in Chicago. It's interesting. People have a hard time focusing, and I get it, I get it, I, and I push them to, to focus on the orange fascism, right? The, 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 the anti-Christ, uh, uh, neo-Nazi, Trump, Pence, Miller, Barr regime uh, uh, people have a hard time focusing on that. Sometimes they're dealing with the blue fascism, the blue metropolitan fascism. that never went away. The police state, uh, the racist police state continued on Obama. He didn't do shit. I suppose the most progressive thing Obama ever did, maybe, besides adding some, uh, a bunch of people to health care. That, that happened. I mean, there's no point in leftists pretending that, that more people got health care under Obama than, 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 than they got than they, than before was uh, he put the city of Chicago under a a police department under a consent decree because of their unbelievable record of murder and abuse in Black and Latino neighborhoods. But of course, that doesn't mean a a goddamn thing anymore now that Trump's in control of the Justice Department.
0: Well, and also it's it's kind of... signature Obama move to, you know, put the Chicago police department under a consent decree while at the same time signing all of the orders to send military grade equipment to police departments all over the country. I mean, much of the yeah, then
1: you'll point a blue ribbon
0: commission about it. right and 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 much of the reason we have a so called blue lives matter movement and this cop worshiping you know, uh, culture of fascist bootlicking that is uh predominant on the right now, much of that is a backlash during the Obama years, and it wasn't all because Obama was black, a lot of it had to do with Obama's inability to address many of these core issues. I mean, where did Obama land when? Ferguson was exploding? Where did Obama land when Baltimore was exploding? I mean, these things, as you said, I mean, these things happened under Obama. He didn't send a federal task force to go in there and root out the white supremacists from all of these police departments. He let it all fester, and all of that has reared its head under Trump. Trump has really, I think, the word is weaponized. Trump has weaponized all the reactionary institutions of this country, all of those institutions that obama had eight years to address
1: well you know all these institutions some of them constitutional some of them extra constitutional i've always sort of been sitting there waiting for a full-on fascist to take control of them and, and usually the presidents come out of socialization networks like harvard law like yale law like the obamas and the clintons uh that that lead them to um you know restrain themselves a little bit now you got a guy in there that hasn't been socialized that way i mean one of the you know, as I said, the good news about Trump is you've got a president for the first time who's completely outside the normal ideological socialization mechanisms of the ruling class. The bad news is that he happens to be a, um, a, uh, a neo-fascist. But, you know, I want to add something about Obama and race, which is that he consistently, through his presidency, fed, and not only by the model of his own success, but with his own political and ideological lectures, to black America... He fed the sense uh, uh, that they that black folks in this country really didn't have all that much to be protesting about. He he actively advanced a personal and cultural responsibility narrative about black poverty. He would go give speeches to, to HCBUs at graduation and tell and tell young black men that they have absolutely nothing to complain about
0: in America. And he used to Paul, go. He was Paul, yeah. he was just being true to his Reaganite values.
1: Well, it's funny you say that. He says in his books that uh, I tried to warn people about this in my first book about Obama because I read all his speeches and his books and this guy used to uh in the same breath uh praise Ronald Reagan and rip on the 1960s, you know, those horrible awful 1960s, you know, which just happened to be the last greatest democracy uprising decade in American history since the 30s. But uh not in Obama world.
0: So in closing, I want to just leave with a couple of couple of points. I want to get your comment on sure. some uh, a, a pretty astute political observer that I know and respect and sp- and speak to fairly regularly told me, and I thought this was I, I mean I, I guess I knew this, but it was just kind of interesting to hear him say it that one of the things to understand about Obama is that Obama will spend the next forty years, really the rest of his life, defending his administration his presidency from the left that is what that is what the remainder of his life work is going to be it's not going to be about rallying forces to oppose fascism it's not going to be about addressing systematic inequality or anything like that it's going to be to make sure that the uh ascendant left progressive socialist uh young people of the millennials and generation z and so forth who are much less enamored with the obama myth that they don't tarnish his legacy and one of the one of the principal ways that he's going to do that. Is by trying to attack, demonize, undermine, subvert, and otherwise destroy every leftist that comes through the Democratic Party.
1: Well, that's what he did in 2019 and 2020. He did it in 2015 and 2016. He did everything he could behind the scenes to trash Bernie Sanders while claiming that he wasn't and while claiming that he wasn't involved in the uh, that he wasn't involved in the candidate selection process. And people get my book and read the fifth chapter. I'll see where he's done that. I will add something else about Obama. He, I believe his memoir is out now. The thing that he, uh, or is it the first volume of it? It's like, you know, just a thousand pages, kind of a modest read. Uh, The thing he's been paid $65 million for. And if his book that he first became known for, what was it called Dreams of My Father, is any kind of example of how he writes his own history, uh, it'll be very deceptive. Uh, it'll be very, it'll be very, uh, it'll be full of all kinds of, uh, of, of uh, misrepresentations and, and, and all of that. But yeah, he'll portray himself as a progressive uh, and, and, uh, and, and a lot of people uh, are going to buy that. I might add that he's been screwing up his presidential library uh, on the south side of Chicago, which is a real clusterfuck, excuse me if I can say that on your, your show on numerous levels, one of which is it doesn't have archivists and it's not going to have paper sources. It's all digital. Uh, normally, a presidential library comes in and, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart because I'm a historian for archivists. I like archivists to have jobs. I'm not going to have any jobs at the, anti- the, the Barack Obama presidential anti-library and um, it's all digital and it'll So then it's the perfectly
0: cool. emblematic symbol of Obama's presidency. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he can he can send his own real history down the digital memory hole, on top of which his presidential library is an agent of gentrification. that's hurting working class, poor black people in the the neighborhood of Woodlawn on the south side of Chicago. And it's an ecological calamity, too, because it's tearing up a bunch of green space. You know, people didn't black Chicago didn't like Obama until he ascended. And now they're sort of back to not liking. It's kind of funny. Like, what have you done for us? You know, and now you're, now you've got your goddamn library in here and, uh, and it's, it's helping gentrify this, this one community and screwing up a nice green space, you know, on the South side where there isn't enough green space.
0: Final question, Paul, um, we're just about out of time. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, peer if you would into your crystal ball, which I know you have (laughs) and keep next to your bedside, um, (laughs) I'd like for you to peer into your crystal ball. We're chatting here in the first week of October, 2020. We are about five weeks, four and a half weeks away from the uh, presidential election. I want to get your prediction, not about what's going to happen with the results of the election or anything after that, although I guess that's part of it. But what role does Obama play in this coming contested election because it is going to be a contested election regardless i think of what the results are and obama as you correctly noted is the single most popular politician in yeah. this country not only that he is the preceding president so he has uh you know as much ground as anybody to have a public comment on it or whatever what do you think if anything obama will do given what's likely to happen with uh, uh, legal challenges, protests in the streets, etc.
1: Boy, that's really hard to say. This is really the ultimate test of Obama's um, and the Democratic Party's uh, 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 ballot fetishizing addiction to electoralism over people in the streets. I often say the Democratic Party's mission in life is to keep People off the streets, and you know, you have this kind of Howard Zinn dichotomy between, uh, you know, two minutes in the voting booth, and and um, you know, and and you know, the multiple choice uh, narrow selection test called an election, and how history really changes. And um, with the Democrats always siding with the two minute multiple choice test, it's well, it's not multiple; it's a binary test. Uh, but th- this election cycle is unlike any election cycle we've ever seen. We have an incumbent who is at the very least an authoritarian and at the worst a, 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 a fascist, who has literally waging war on the electoral, electoral process itself. I mean, I just, I just frankly, I, I didn't think I would live to see this in my lifetime. I, I, I'm just still processing it amazingly, even as I follow it very closely. And um, it will necessitate in all likelihood a mobilization of people a united front, and I at this point I can't be picky about it. Not just the left. I mean, geez, liberals, anybody. People are going to have to take to the streets to fight this thing. I mean, it's it's it, Obama isn't. I mean, Obama Trump isn't hiding it. He's telegraphing. He's telling us what he's going to do. He's he's trashing the mail-in ballots that are necessitated by the pandemic that he fanned. the 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 the, 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 the uh, genocidal racist pandemic. That he fanned while simultaneously trying to cripple the postal service. He's deploying armed poll watchers. He's saying, "I can't lose. If I, the only way I can lose is if the election is rigged," which is an open call for his armed Trump and Volk American or fascist backers to to take to the street. So it's going to be, and 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 now he's got the Supreme Court on his side. That's sort of his final Trump card because this thing will probably end up in the Supreme Court. Uh, weeks if not months after the election, and like it's kind of like, okay, do you get it that you're going to have to deploy and, and, and masses of people, uh, and find some way to counter this precisely to carry out a decent electoral process? The electoral process, which is what shuts everybody down and keeps people off the streets, now the electoral process needs people on the streets. I don't see Obama. Uh, uh, even things Bernie Sanders are saying, I don't, I don't see that they have that kind of courage. They just don't seem to be made that way. I don't think the Democrats know how to fight the fascist-era Republican Party the way it needs to be fought. So, in other words, that fight will have to be led by others, actually on the left, uh, who are going to have to out them, And since we're desperate and since Trump is a malignant cancer, which has to be cut out so that the patient doesn't die, I'm not picky about who comes along and joins in because I think we need as many human beings as possible. So I'm not, I wouldn't even be above imploring Obama to call for people in the streets. And I would say before, not just after, after it's too late. This thing is happening Now, that debate the other night was a throwdown. It it was evident, it was clear that Trump isn't trying to win a normal election. No efforts to reach out to women, no efforts to reach out to moderates, none of that, none of what he'd have to do to win a normal election. That debate performance, so-called debate, said to me, yes, in fact, they're just betting on constitutional and extra-constitutional mechanisms to steal this election that has to sink in with everybody. Everybody, um, I wish it would sink in with with Obama. Maybe, maybe, maybe he'll read my book and 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 have a come to Jesus moment and uh, and uh, put on a flak jacket and a uh, and some goggles and a gas mask. And I'm kidding, of um, course. But um, we sure as hell can't wait around for Barack Obama to save us. I ain't gonna work.
0: I will be waiting with bated breath to hear Barack Obama's review of hollow resistance obama (laughs) trump and the politics of appeasement the brand new book from paul street published by counterpunch paulstreet.org is the website paul street is the iconoclast paul street has been my guest paul thanks as always for chatting with us
1: hey absolutely and enjoy the uh, dodgers game tonight
0: will do Maybe. We shall see about that. Uh, Listeners, thank you as always. Go check out Counterpunch Plus. Check out the subscriber section. Do become a subscriber. Support this project. Support independent media. Paul, as always, you're a beauty. Listeners, talk to you again next week.